Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're discussing God's blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9. We talk about the way God appears to Abraham when he and his family seem to have gotten stuck in a city named for his dead brother Haran, encouraging Abraham to continue moving toward his original goal, the land of Canaan. We think about God's command to Abraham to go for yourself, and we ponder the ways that following God's calling can often be as much about finding ourselves as it is about reaching some external destination. And we talk about God's declaration to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed in you. And we wonder whether this might be a good benchmark of faithful living. Is the world blessed by our presence, or is it not? There's a lot to unpack in these nine short verses. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby, how are ya? Hey, Amy. I am doing great. Good. What's happening in your world? What's happening in my world? I um, had a, this is the most immediate thing in my mind. I started taking, uh, I started seeing a voice coach, which is terrifying. I find the whole, I find it completely terrifying. And today we were like basically played tug of war with a bungee cord while singing. Oh. (laughs) He was trying to get me to activate my core. Yeah. So we were doing all these like sumo squats and like tug of war. (laughs) And it was so fun. It was like this weird orange theory voice coaching mashup. Yeah. Is this for your work with the mamalas or what, what are you trying to, what do you, you have such a lovely voice anyway. Like what are you working on? That That's very sweet of you. You never really hear my voice. So I'm glad you like it. I am looking for, I, I like the intersection of religious life and music singing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to develop skill sets that let me hang out in that yeah. space. Yeah. So sometimes it's prayer leadership. Sometimes it's singing in services. Sometimes it's singing religious songs out of services. Sometimes it's playing tug of war with a bungee cord. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So this has nothing to do with that, but I've been wanting to tell you this all week. Mm. I. My do- my four-year-old and I made up a joke together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is very promising. Yeah. It's, uh, you're going to love this. I've, I, If you don't love it, you have to pretend that you have loved it. I will. <laughs> I will. I will. I promise. Okay. What do you call a dinosaur that likes to read Aristotle? A philosoraptor. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking. We were talking about philosophy, and my daughter actually made up the punchline, and then I had to nuance the front end a little bit to get because she doesn't know Aristotle. Your daughter, pretty is good. Just something else. She is. She is. That is no truer words have ever been spoken. That was a fantastic joke. Thank you for that. I shall 
ride on the joy of that joke all the way through Shabbat <laughs> this week. Last week we were in Noah. Yeah. The the most famous quote unquote children's story that is actually wildly inappropriate for children. I bet the velociraptors all died in the flood. That's why <laughs> that's why I've oh. never known a velociraptor. Oh. Hmm. Well, they wouldn't they go on the ark? They were they too were busy too contemplating the reality of the universe. <laughs> and they took up a lot of room. Yeah. So yeah. sad. Yes, that is what happened. Yes. Okay, so we read Noah. We, we read about the the loss of the velociraptors, which is really what <laughs> makes it a sad story for yeah. children, not the fact that God decides to destroy pretty much all of creation that. except for just like a couple remnants. Yeah. We haven't skipped that many chapters. Yeah. We're this week we're in Genesis 12, but it goes through a lot of a lot of time. Yeah. Can you can you what do we need to know that has happened between the story of Noah and I should say this week our our passage is Genesis 12 verses 1 through 9 just a just a little a wee passage but a yeah. also a big one. I mean you know we're at a major break in the book of Genesis and in the biblical story right here and oftentimes the way that it's talked about is Genesis 1 to 11 is the term often used is the primeval history it's like the story of the the long distant times before the real story gets started kind of. And then in chapter 12, as we'll see, the story, it doesn't start over exactly, but there's sort of a reset and it becomes the story of Abram and his family rather than the story of humankind writ large. Mm -hmm. So in that primeval history, you know, we've got this sort of repeated theme where God sets out a world for people and then they're disobedient in the garden God kind of creates a new possibility and then humans become wicked on the earth and so God destroys them again. Then last week we saw um, Noah. We restarted with Noah. And all that really has happened narratively, there's a whole bunch of, there's some quirky little stories in there and a whole bunch of genealogy. But to me, the key story that we're sort of moving past is the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis mm-hmm. 11 which is the story in which humankind all has one language according to the biblical text. And so they come together and they build a big tower trying to be like God, trying to make a name for themselves. And so God scatters them across the world and confuses their languages. And so the, the way that I kind of think about the primeval history, and you and I talk about it this way a fair amount, is that God and humankind are trying to sort of work out a way of being together Or maybe God is trying to figure out a way of like being God for human beings, given that we have a propensity to disobedience. And it hasn't gone very well. (laughs) Every time results in some kind of scattering, some kind of dismissal, some kind. And every time God sort of resets, at the end of Genesis 11, we've got a scattering. And then I I think what we're going to read today in Genesis 12 is kind of the, the reset that maybe sticks a little better than the, than the mm-hmm. first ones. W- would you say other things about that? Here's, here's the very important addition I have. When my kids were little, little, and you know something just had to happen that they didn't want to happen, like you had to change their diaper or whatever, they had to wake up from a nap or they had to whatever, whatever was making them angry and they would scream and scream. Yeah. I would try to um, sort of cheer them up, but sort of cheer myself up from the screaming by singing this little song that when... 
this is not what you had in mind, not what you had in mind. And then it had like verses about what they had in mind and what they thought we would do, but what we're actually doing. <laughs> that that to me is like the, that's the soundtrack to like every scene, this is not what God had in mind. Like, what are you doing? This is not, yeah. this is not what was supposed to happen. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can tell you've been working with the vocal coach. That. Yeah, that was really, that, uh-huh. could you yeah. hear the core strength? I could, yeah. Beautiful, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's really, really helpful. And and even just as you were like pointing out some details of 11, I had these little zings of recognition of things that come up in 12. So we'll, we'll talk about those as we get to them. Yeah. There's one other element of like really close, close range context. Yeah. That I would love to put on the table also that comes just in the verses before chapter 12, when we actually get introduced to Avram and his family, his father and his brothers, mostly. So it starts in 1126. We're not going to read it, but I'm, I'm just going to summarize this little bit of background on his family for us. Okay. So Avram had two brothers. One of them, who is named Haran, died. He had a son named Lot. We don't know anything about Lot's mother. We just know Lot, Lot's father has died. The other brother, Nahor, got married and had children. And then there's Avram, who is married, but it tells us that they're not able to have children. Yeah. The father of these three brothers, Avram and his two brothers, is Terach. And it tells us that Terach left their home in or of the Chaldeans, with Avram and his wife Sarah, Sarai, and also with Lot, I guess, because I don't yeah. know if Lot's an orphan or I don't know what, again, I don't know the yeah. situation with Lot's mother. And they started going towards Canaan, mm-hmm. but they stopped partway through in a city called Haran. Yeah. And it always just, I'm sure this is just a coincidence, but it always feels so... I don't know, resonant in some way that the father stops in a city that's named for his son who died. Yeah. And he he just doesn't go any further than that. Yeah. And that's that's where their father dies. Yeah. And then it'll pick up again. You know, for people who are interested in the theory of the biblical text that assign different texts to different sources, like different authors' hands, it seems that in this story we have two different authors' hands. So like one author's hand sort of starts it as you know, Avram started this journey with his father, and then another author says sort of, no, he didn't. (laughs) He started it on his own. I don't know that it matters. I don't know that we need to sort it out one way or another, but I don't know. Seeing Avram in the context of his family of origin is, it fills him out a little bit for me. Yeah, I love that, Amy. I, I actually preached a sermon one time on this issue of Haran, the son who has died and getting stuck in Haran. And like, I, oh, I mean, you wow. never hear sermons about that, but it's a really interesting text that he gets stuck in his plan in the place that has the dead son's name. And, you know, I there's a possibility that they came upon a place named that and they just couldn't move on or that they got stuck in the process of like, remembering so they settled and named a place that but i think Mm -hmm. it's really important symbolically at least i think there's an opening symbolically to say this family was grieving and they they're grieving kind of they got stuck and they couldn't move on 
and they didn't get where they were headed. I, I, it's yeah. important that they, you said they were headed to Canaan. They got to Haran and stopped. So they're sort of, they've made a long journey around the Fertile Crescent, but they yeah. haven't made it all the way to where they were going. Yeah. I think that's such important context. And then, you know, the story of, we talk on, on the podcast from time to time about what do we do with the motif of women who can't have children in the biblical yeah. text. But in this moment, symbolically, where we are is with a family that seems like the, the son has died or the brother has died, how, wh- whichever yeah. way you want to frame mm-hmm. it. The hero of the story that we're about to meet, uh, they are not able to have children. Like this, it feels like a, it feels like the end of a story. And yeah. what's about to it happen does feel is a like new the end of a beginning. Story. Yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting that. Yeah, and I think I like it too because if you just start with chapter 12, it can read a little bit like almost flip. Like Abraham gets this call to go forward from the land of his, you know, father and he just goes and he just like leaves everything as though it – as though it wasn't as hard as it was or as as though it weren't such a big deal or something like that. And so putting all this sort of like this rootedness and heartbreak – into yeah. the context of the story. Yeah, adds adds a lot of richness to me. I really like that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that in. I'm sure we'll come back to that as we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm sure we will. Um, so as I said, our reading today is not long. It is chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, but you have already told me that the Bible Worm Collaborative had a lot to say about it. It has so, so much I, to say. I look forward to hearing yeah. some of their insights and questions too as we go. But for now, I will get started. Let's do it. So I'm reading from the NJPS and picking up in verse 1. The Lord said to Avram, Go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. I always want to start reading this as like, picture this literally happening. Mm. Like, can you even imagine it? Like, just hearing, Avram has not been introduced to God as far as we know, right? right? They have no previous relationship. The Lord just speaks to him and says this, like, kind of crazy thing. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. How would you know to listen to that voice? I don't know. There's no answer to that question. I just, what does that mean? Go and I'll show you later where to stop. Yeah, I mean, that the the command here, or I don't, I've never, I struggle with whether it's a command or an invitation or exactly what it is. Yeah. But what is offered is very vague, right? Go and I'll tell you what's going to happen next. But here's the stuff that's going to come from that. So, like, the promise is very concrete. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. The specifics of it, I guess, are a little bit open, but like God's names a lot of things, great nation, a blessing, respected name. And so there's a lot of risk here for Avram. By the way, I tend to call Avram Abraham even before his name change. So if I slip back and forth, Avram later on becomes Abraham. And then that's, you know, (laughs) that's that's how that goes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the... God, it's, all of this is sort of God's 
action, like I'm going to do all of these things. But the response required of Abraham is really something to have to respond. And I love what you were saying there about as far as we know, Abram doesn't know this God. And as far as we know, this God doesn't know Abram. That's true. <laughs> like one of the questions that's always interesting to me is why like God could have chosen anybody. He chooses this yeah. guy from Ur of the Chaldees who, about whom we know nothing as far as yeah. the biblical text is concerned, except a little bit we just talked about. It feels risky to me both for Abram and for God is how it feels to me. I love that you lifted up the risk that God is taking too, because I always just think I climb into the human role and think yeah. about like what kind of uh, character traits would a person need to actually do this. But you're right. The text doesn't, I mean, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's mysterious. It's mysterious how God chooses Abraham. And there, and there are, of course, as I'm sure you can imagine, Midrash, you know, that, that say, well, maybe this is why Abraham was chosen. And they're actually, some of them are so popular that Jewish people don't know they're not in the Torah. Right. But the Torah doesn't, doesn't give us any stories about that. There's a verse in Joshua 24, I think it is, where Terah, Abraham's father, is described as worshiping other gods while they were in Mesopotamia. Mm. And I think that in the Midrashic tradition, right, that opens up this whole thing about him being an an idol, not just mm-hmm. a worshiper, but a maker. Yep, and, yeah, maker. And Av- young Avram destroys all that the idols and all of those things. And mm-hmm. when I read those Midrash, you know, I think that they're being troubled. The, the rabbis are being troubled by the question that we're raising, which is why why Avram of all the people? And the fact that the idea that there's not a reason is troubling. And so they mm-hmm. say, well, here's the reason. And they sort of create the backstory. Mm-hmm. But in the biblical text, there's not a backstory. And so God has just chosen somebody for reasons that that are not given at all. You know, in my tradition, we like to talk about the freely given gifts of God. And here mm-hmm. is like a prime example of that. God has just showed up and said to someone who has made no particular commitment to God, God has said, look, I'm going to bless you through no deserving of your own. Not because you're of rum, but because I'm God. That's mm-hmm. the root of the blessing. And I wonder... You know, we you were talking earlier about sort of the narrowing scope of what of the the kind of covenant that God wants to form, or that you know, how, how God keeps trying it in these big ways, and is like, maybe we're just going to start with one person, right? And I, I, it almost makes me wonder whether we can imagine a world in which there wasn't something about Avram in particular that it was just if if I God were to pour my love and energy into one person, right? could I make that work? Right. You know, our world functions so much on you get what you deserve, like the, the meritoriousness yeah. of what is yeah. offered and given to you. And so I love reading it as God has made a choice in which God has risked the divine blessing on somebody who hasn't earned it. Mm-hmm. And I, like to me, I don't, know, I don't know that's the only way one can read this text. But to me, it seems like an important one in our culture of merit to say God is a God who gives gifts and it's not about who merits it. It's about God's nature. Mm-hmm. To, I feel like you and I have talked about this text somewhere along the way, and I tend to emphasize God's free action. My recollection, tell me, I, I might be totally wrong about this, but I feel like you, what you're going to say next 
is something about Abraham's response. Like Abraham had Abraham had to go in order to receive. Abraham this had to go. Yeah, Abraham had to go, and that was that was a a pretty. You know, okay. So I I realized reading it this time that I'm that I'm reading this story really differently based on my own experiences over the past year. Mm. In a way to take all of this in a much more sort of metaphorical way that I don't know that I'll go very much into in this podcast, but I I do think a lot about the the kind of person that Avram would have to be yeah. or the kind of point he would have to be at in his life if we imagine that he is grieving and his father has just died and they're in this land which is not where he grew up but not where they were headed and they can't have children and he you know like yeah if we imagine that he's at a point where he's like okay yeah <laughs> you know let's let's try something else Bobby, the name of this section of text in the Jewish tradition comes from the first two words in Hebrew. Hmm. Are they actually the first two words? No, it's not the first. It's the first two, like, uncommon words, I guess. Lech lecha. Hmm. Which sounds very, uh, it has a particular ring to it in Hebrew that doesn't doesn't carry over, go forth, you know? <laughs> like yeah. It, it doesn't, doesn't sound like anything in English. And it, it's the same two Hebrew consonants twice, lech lecha. And there's there's much ado about this in the, in the Jewish world yeah. of thinking about this text, like what exactly is meant by that phrase. Can you first just tell us like literally what, what does lech lecha mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm so curious about the rabbinic interpretation. You know, like, so... Lech or lech is the imperative halach, mm-hmm. like go. Go. And it is sufficient unto itself, right? Yes. So God could simply have said lech. The lacha there is like to yourself or for yourself or like it, it's not clear to me grammatically what it's mm-hmm. doing there or even exactly how you should translate it. Like I've, I've heard it just like go, but then I'm like, well, then you lose the lacha or like get yourself to the land, which mm-hmm. I mean, maybe is uh, what that means, but I don't like, I, I don't have a smooth way of moving it into English that captures yeah. the sense. And I'm not even entirely sure that I know what the sense is trying to express. Yeah. What, how do you read it or where does the tradition go with that? I mean, the way that I read it when I'm trying to, to read it the way I think the Torah actually wants me to read it is sort of, as you were saying, like this, it's like sort of, for me, like an emphatic, like get yourself up, like pick yourself up and go. Like it's yeah. this, I don't know, there's more sort of recognition of like the activation energy it's going to take <laughs> to get, you know, to get yourself up and go. But reading it literally, go to yourself, which is not what I think it is meant to mean by the author of the Torah, it just opens up this whole other world of possibilities. Yeah. Like almost taking this story, I don't know if I want to say more metaphorically or more in terms of like a person trying to realize their their rightful place in the world and God's plan, whatever they construe that to mean. And that I think is something that many people can probably relate to. Yeah. 
And that's something that I would say I don't know that I could have related to before fairly recently, but having some sense that like there is a call in a particular direction and this is exactly right. It's not like there's a, here's exactly where you're going and exactly how you're going to get there. Yeah. But it is a call to leave what is familiar or, you know. And so I, I think there's a, you know, again, I know we try to stick close to what we think the text is actually saying, but I think there's a whole world of, of resonance if we take it in that other direction too. Yeah, no, I love that, Amy. And I'm, I'm, you know, we're always interested in what the text is actually saying, but we're also on this podcast, I feel like committed to the 70 sides of the Torah principle. Yeah, where yeah. Where things have yeah. many ways and the different ways you approach them can show you something different. I really love what you were saying. And, you know, I was thinking go to yourself or go for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that had me going down this whole line of thinking based on what we were saying earlier that God is not simply showing up here and sort of telling Abraham to go just to show that God can make somebody do something, right? right. There is a, it is, there is a, a, one can read it anyway, especially when you bring in the end of 11, like you asked us to do, like you, Abram needs to move on. He is, yeah. he has gotten stuck in a place of death and barrenness and looking at the past. And so that in, invitation, you could read it as go for yourself. So God needs Abraham, Abram to move on, but also like, Abram needs to, to get unstuck. Yeah. And so I, I, I love that way of thinking about it. And, and then it becomes sort of God is inviting Abram into a new life that requires some risk, but is also about new possibility, like moving on from, from where he's become entrapped and there's new yeah. possibility there. Yeah. Then this sort of dichotomy that I was developing of like freely given gift versus like obedient response sort of falls apart in what I think is a really nice way. It, it becomes like an invitation to a to a relationship that moves things on, moves things yeah. to a new way of life that's yeah. good for God, good for Abram. We yeah. don't need to worry so much about gift and obedience. Although I think both of those things are probably there, but I, but maybe that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah, while you were talking, this is probably overly dramatic, but I was thinking of that scene from, I think it's the never-ending story. You probably haven't watched that in a while because your it's kids been a long are long time. Yeah, young. But there's this scene where I don't even remember their names, but one of the main characters and his horse are passing through this, like it's like quicksand of sorrow, mm. and you can you can you can get through it, but but you get weighed down with sadness as you're in it. And if the sadness takes over, then you drown, you go down in the quicksand, yeah. you can't get through it. And I just had this image of like, you know, again, that's reading a lot of uh, emotion into a text that doesn't give us a whole lot, but that idea of, of stuckness and knowing that you, uh, you know, being able to sort of lift your eyes to a different horizon and, and try to, there is something on the other side of this place and you need yeah. to pull yourself out, like lech lecha, get yourself up yeah, and, and go. I love that. I love that. And I love thinking about Abram. You know, sometimes we think of him as a mighty hero of the faith. And I mean, and he is that. Mm-hmm. But also at the beginning of this story, it is, uh, he probably did not think of himself as being particularly mighty or at all a hero, but sort of like the thing is, you know, he, 
it seems like you're at an ending, as we were saying, and then then he makes a response. So I don't know. That's comforting yeah. to me. Like, because yeah. I I very rarely feel like a hero of any kind or a, really a very faithful. And so to think like, oh yeah, I mean, this is Abram's experience as well, and that you yeah. can be called forward in that from that. There's just one other thing I want to ask about before we move on. Maybe you have other things too. Yeah. The words of this blessing that God yeah. gives. I have a couple questions, but one of them, are they set off in your translation? Like as a, it looks like it's poetry in mine. Like they've indented the lines mm-hmm. in the way that they would for poetry. Did they do that in your translation? I'm reading the Common English Bible today and it does that. Yes, it's set set out as poetry. Hmm. I feel like in asking that question, you are you are questioning whether that that's a uh, like is that what difference does it make to you if we read it as poetry or not as poetry? I mean, I feel I try when when I understand something to be poetry to sort of I don't know like relax my mind a little bit and not not try to be so tight mm. or you know not try to grasp at the meaning so harshly. Yeah, I do see in here sort of. Uh, like a sort of a a rhythm or, you know, repetition of refrains that could be poetic. Not exact repetition of refrains, but, and I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. And I don't know. I guess it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's a little hard for me to see it as poetry. But as you were saying before, it's also not a very precise promise and it's kind of repetitive. So it's probably better to read it as poetry. Do you have anything to offer? I mean, do you have any thoughts to offer on how to sit with the blessing in particular? I mean, I, so on the one hand, it seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And on and at the same time, this is also the sort of originary blessing out of which both Judaism and Christianity grow. So it seems like an utterly momentous thing in the text. But... Then I also, I'm like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I will say that to me, this, like, the, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. If that were the end of that, this would seem very tit for tat. What mm-hmm. sort of makes this blessing interesting and productive for me is the third move, all the families of the earth. The, the Hebrew there is nivrahu, which your translation was, will bless themselves in you or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It can also be read just as a passive, will be blessed because of you or mm. something like that. I don't know which one of those which one of those is better. But the fact that we moved from this sort of division, yeah, okay, those who bless you, I bless. Those who curse you, I curse. Like there's two groups. Right. At the end, all the families, everyone, suddenly it becomes under blessing. To me, that seems really important. What, where this text ends up is the whole world becomes blessed. Mm-hmm. And so I want to I want to grab that grab onto that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. And I love that. Like even at this moment that we're we're really narrowing it down to one person. <laughs> right. Still, it is one person through which all families shall be blessed. Right. You know, there is still. God still holds out hope that we're not really just talking about one person. We're just, we're starting with one. (laughs) Yeah. 
I think that's urgently important. And God has shifted tactics to one person with the goal of yes. returning to the rest of humanity. So yes. it's not that God has set one group apart over and against the others. God has set one group apart on behalf of the others. Yes. To me, that's that distinction is, is, is essential to, yeah. to understanding what's happening here. Yeah. The other thing that popped into my head as you were talking about the Tower of Babel story is that this blessing explicitly says, I will make your name great. Oh, And when yeah. they were, you know, making the Tower of Babel, they were trying to make a name for themselves. And I mean, some of it is just, I think, I guess a trope of the time, but the idea that it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with having a great name. It's a, as we see in the Tower of Babel, it's a question of who's, who's supposed to be controlling this, who yeah. gets to give the good name. I love that. So instead of make a name for yourselves, it's I will make a name for you. Yeah. That's important. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode. If you're a Bible Worm listener who has never tried any of our other Patreon offerings, we have a special deal for you this month. For the month of September, all Patreon subscribers from the Bible Worm supporter level and up can receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, regardless of your subscription level. You can join at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 to receive these benefits for the month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, you can cancel anytime. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details on becoming part of Bible Worm's Patreon community. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay. I'm picking up in verse 4. Avram went forth as the Lord had commanded him, and Lot went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Avram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the wealth that they had amassed and the persons that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in the land of Canaan, Avram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem at the Terebinth of Moreh. The Canaanites were then in the land. Okay, so Avram does go. He does. That's great. Glad to see the story is not going to end right there. <laughs> For me, when it starts describing his wealth. Yeah. I, it, I don't know if it's like a source issue, if that's like, I, I don't, I'm always surprised when I get to that part. Like, because I guess I've just pictured him in the, you know, quicksands or whatever in, yeah. <laughs> in his grief. And now it's talking about his his wealth and the persons he had acquired. Yeah. I don't know. Do you pick, how do you picture Avram now? Do you imagine that he's well off or it's just saying he brought his stuff? Yeah, like that's interesting, Amy, because like I, yeah, I had not really thought about that, but I, I feel like in a, in my tradition, maybe, I don't know. I'd have to look, look at the revised common lectionary, but I feel like I often have read this story just as 12, one to three and <laughs> kind of stopped there with the blessing. Uh, and so I picture Abram as like a dusty nomad. I think I'm yeah. exactly the same as you. And then it turns out he's not a dusty nomad. I mean, he might be yeah. dusty, but yeah. he's got, he's got a fair amount of wealth and he's got people and a whole thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I don't quite know what to do with that. I, I assume, and he, I mean, he gathers even more, like, as you know, in the Abraham yeah. story, he keeps getting wealthier through various means. 
And there's a biblical trope, of course, that if you are obedient, you will be blessed. And so wealth is a sign of blessing. So that would suggest that he's probably not wealthy yet. Because he just met God like Because he just met God, and and we know that God is going to bless him with wealth. Yeah. So maybe it's just it, but it does run counter to the image of this like lone wanderer. Yeah. You know, lonely man of faith kind of guy. Like he's moving a whole little ecosystem with him. Yeah. You know. That's right. But he's definitely not planning to go. It seems that he's not planning to go back. Right. I think that's important. Like he has loaded up the U-Haul. And we don't know whether it's the 12-foot yeah. truck or the 24-foot yeah. truck. Like, we don't quite know how much stuff's in the U-Haul, but it's all in the U-Haul. And it's not, it's a one-way rental. It's not coming back. I really, I really ran with that metaphor. I didn't know. That was good. That was a good <laughs> metaphor. I didn't know I was going to run with that. But yeah, no, I think that's right. He is, he has not left anything there to come back to. Yeah. That's not entirely true because he he's going <laughs> to send his son back in just a minute. But uh Yeah. But yeah, this is a move he has made. He has taken all the things. They've not left a. They've not left a safety plan, an, a, a, an emergency yeah. exit. Bobby, do you, do you, what should we do with this little phrase, the persons that they had acquired? Yeah. Do you have any wisdom for us on that? Do you think they're talking about servants or slaves? I mean, Amy, that's such an interesting question that the Hebrew is just hanefesh asher asu b'haran, which is like the the life that they made in Haran. Yeah. And so I don't know how I don't know how to make sense of that. Like this expression, the life they made in Haran, sounds too contemporary. Right. Or you know, nefesh. I don't the life force, the soul, the I don't know. I don't know quite. That seems like 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 our our translations have given that a really different sensibility. The like CEB really different- that was that was Williamson translation. The CEB is members of their household. No, those who became members of their household. Mm. So I like there's nothing here that explicitly indicates slavery. Mm-hmm. There's nothing here that prevents that reading either. Yeah. So this could be people who joined in, people who came to work for them, people who they he brought acquired. His people. He brought, brought his, his people. people. Mm-hmm. Like he brought Lot and Sarai and his people. Yeah. That's really helpful because otherwise we'd have a whole problem we had to deal with here. We would. <laughs> we would. We yeah. would. So it says Avram went as told. Mm-hmm. We're not told in advance where he's going to. But then we hear in verse 6 that he goes as far as the site of Shechem at the terebinth of Morath. A terebinth is like, I think, like an oak tree. My translation has the oak of Morath. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like Shechem is in the sort of the north, right? I mean, it's north of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. kind Mm -hmm. of up in what becomes Samaria later. But I don't really know... Yeah, I'm not really sure why it's so specific about the Oak of Mora. I've never I've never really thought about that. What do you have thoughts about why they tell us that he went to that to a, like a tree? I mean, I have I have two minds about it. One of them is they're in the desert, so of course you're going to go to a tree. Like <laughs> Yeah. Like you're looking for trees. That's where you're going to be. You always want to camp next to a tree. And you know, possibly for that very practical reason, but there are a number of stories about Avram 
choosing to choosing to be near a tree or building an altar near a tree or meeting God or God's messengers near a tree. And I know in the ancient Near East, there were traditions that trees had some sort of, I don't want to say divine power about them because that makes it sound a little weird, but they there was a sense of like real divine presence when you were in the presence of a big tree, like an oak. Yeah. And there are actually some, I have, I've heard it suggested, the word more, which might be a place, it's capitalized in my translation, but the word also means teacher. Mm. It could possibly also mean diviner. Like mm-hmm. it, I don't know if it's just a tree. And again, the text doesn't really tell us if it's just a tree, but if someone wanted to really dig into the sacred nature of of, of really grand trees and their capacity to kind of energetically change things and mm. connect us to creation or connect us to, you know, reaching up towards the heavens or something yeah. like that. I feel like there's space for that in here. Yeah. I really like that. I like, I don't, I, I don't quite know what to do with it, but I, know, I think you're exactly right that, you know, there is some, some significance of trees as sacred spaces and, you know, and just in my own experience, like, have you ever been like to the redwood forests in California or a place oh, like that where the I trees haven't, are? I haven't, and I, I am dying to go. There really is something that just feels like when you're next to a tree that that's, that's that big, it does kind of make you feel like you're in a thin space, you know, a place where you're closer to God. And mm. so I can absolutely see that connection and that this is a, like God is particularly present in these places. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, you know, he's at the sacred place at Shechem. He's next to the the oak tree. So God has not simply sent him to some random location, but has sent him to a place of particular divine presence or or something like that. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think too. This is, again, a little more poetic than academic, I think, but I don't know, just I'm thinking about the redwood forest now or how I imagine them yeah. because I haven't been yet. And just this sense of their, like the sense of eternity and awe and grandeur in this, you know, and especially if you're, if the whole landscape is sort of desert-like and you have a grand tree there, I could imagine that would be really yeah. anchoring Yeah, at a, in a place that, either a time in his life or just a time in the landscape that that feels pretty lonely. I would want to go sit under a tree. I like that. Then we get this this line that many, many people have spilled a lot of ink on. Hmm. The Canaanites were then in the land. Yeah, this is actually what the Bible and Collaborative spent a lot of time on. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm so curious about it because, you know, I mean, the concern, of course— is that especially, you know, we have some pastors who are preaching in places where there are Native American populations presently. Anybody teaching or preaching in North America is in a place where colonization has been enacted by Europeans. And so the question of like, how do you talk about this text, which seems to be acknowledging that the land that has been given is a land that is previous like currently occupied by someone else when it is given Mm. like how do you talk about that in a context of colonization 
in a way that has any integrity? I think that was the question that the mm. Bible Room Collaborative raised. That is such a good and big question. So I was curious, like I, I, I have some thoughts about it, but I was really curious when we were talking, when the Bible Room Collaborative was talking, what you would say. So before I jump in with, with some thoughts that I might have, I'm just curious if you, you've got anywhere to go with it. I know it's a little off the top of the. No, it's a. So, yes, I will tell you the thought that came into my head and also just want to acknowledge that, like, this is a a big question that has real, like, real life import. This is not just a dreamy-eyed hypothetical question. Right. And so I always feel a little bit nervous speaking off the cuff because I might, you know, say something that's that's not well thought out because I haven't thought it out. So I'm, I'm just thinking aloud here. My first thought is to ask whether... It it certainly is possible to go all the way in that direction to say we're talking about a native population being kicked off their land. I think there are also other ways in which people's move on from places. Like I'm thinking about parts of, you know, Manhattan that first that Irish, you know, a big Irish population lived there and then they moved and then the Jews lived there and then they moved and then the... Portuguese moved there and then they moved, you know, like that. I I don't know if the fact that there was a group of people there at that time necessarily has to bring up the big question that you're asking. Although maybe just living in our time, living in America, that by necessity brings up that question. Did that make sense? Well, you're raising is an interesting point and you know we're in the biblical text and so the right what happens to the canaanites in the biblical text if you follow the narrative is really awful and there's a command to exterminate the canaanites and joshua carries it out and so when you see a reference to the canaanites here it is hard not to put yourself in the space of what is about to come mm-hmm. even though this text is not exactly even though it doesn't go all the making way that connection yeah. Yeah. And then there's historical questions, of course, all over the place about like the Joshua narrative and whether that, you know, extermination actually ever took place or whether the Canaanites just moved on or exactly what happened. Like that's a whole other thing. But no, I think reading that not only in the context of modern day uh, people inhabiting other people's lands, but also in the just in the context of the biblical text where we know what happens to Canaanites a little bit later. I think I think the question is very live. That said, what you're saying, I think, is really worth thinking about, which is if we constrain ourselves for the moment to the book of Genesis and the story of Avram, this passage is not thinking about extermination Mm -hmm. or conversion of Canaanites. This text is thinking about, Abram, Abram, you need to go live among the Canaanites and live your life there and be faithful to God. I mean, I'm, this is a little extrapolating a little bit beyond this text, but in the whole Genesis story, there's actually very little tension between Abram and the Canaanites, other than you shouldn't marry them. Mm-hmm. But they don't fight with each other. They right. don't. There's nobody's exterminating anybody. Abram's not trying to convert anybody. So if we stay within the framework of this text, I think. What Abram is being called to a life to be lived out among people 
who are not going to share the same values or the same loyalties that he shares. And that could be difficult. It could make him feel like an like he doesn't belong. It could make uh, it's, it would be easier just to take on the ways of Canaanites instead of doing whatever God will ask him to do. And so I think that there's a first reading of this, which is to say, your calling, Abram's calling, your calling as a person of faith are always lived out in places where there are other people that you have to get along with. And that was true in Abram's time. Mm-hmm. So it may just be a reminder of a later author that like it might seem easy now to go to the land of Israel, ancient Israel, and to worship God because everybody's doing it. But the original, when Abram went, he was the only one. Yeah. And so that it might be, I think it could be amplifying that and that we need to be prepared to do that. Now then the story's going to go a whole other direction. Right generations after Abram in the time of Joshua, and we have to deal with that too. Yes. But I wonder, the other thing that we said in the Bible Room Collaborative that, I mean, is it's my thought, but it's helpful to me, is to go back to that blessing in verse three. I will mm-hmm. bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Yes. And what that text is envisioning is that this is all about the blessing of the world including mm-hmm. the Canaanites. And so Abram's presence among the Canaanites is meant to be a blessing meant for to them. to be a blessing. Yeah. And not meant to be an extermination. And and right. then we can talk about... Then we can talk about what happens later when it happens. Yeah. And I don't know how you think about that, like the, God, like the promise went awry or this thing that was about blessing became about domination. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about when, when we're among other people whether we are thinking about blessing or domination, like there's a whole yeah. conversation one can have there. Yeah. But I'm not sure that it's actually, yeah. That we're quite there. This yeah. text does not require that conversation. Yeah. It just opens but up to that But it is interesting, as you just pointed out, to sort of plant the seed again, because the, because the story will get there. Right. But to start by really emphasizing people will be blessed through you. Like that yes. is the intention that is set Yes. In the beginning. Yes. And then some other things happen, but <laughs> that need to be dealt with. But it, but if we can go back to like what what was how do we how do we square that intention, you know, with things that happen later, I don't know, but we need to hold on to that. Yes. Like to lift that up here because that that's important. Yes. One of the things that you helped me with Amy and I talk about this all the time is you, one of the th- refrains you have had on Bible Worm is when you encounter something in the biblical text that you do not like, you can't change it. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is go find the places where that's happening in the world and you can do something about that. Yeah. And this to me is helpful that way. Like when we are among people who are not us, we have a choice and they're both kind of laid out in the biblical text. Here, live among them as a blessing. In Joshua, live among them as a, as a danger, mm-hmm. as a threat. Right. And those are both available to us in the Bible. Which one are you going to do? And that puts us in the place of examining ourselves and like, in what way are, am I, are we among people? Mm -hmm. And which one of those do I want to be? If I wish that wasn't in the biblical text, then I surely can try to Mm -hmm. eliminate it from my own existence. Yes. Yep. That's, that's where we have power. We have power, but it is limited. Okay, 
Is there anything else you want to say about these couple of verses, or shall we take it to the end? Let's. I think it's. I think we can move on. We can move on. Verse seven: The Lord appeared to Avram and said, "I will assign this land to your offspring." And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built there an altar to the Lord and invoked the Lord by name. Then Avram journeyed by stages toward the Negev. I feel like things pick up quickly in his in Avram's relationship with God here. First, he's heard God tell him to do something, and he did it. And now God appears to him. That just uh, that that's frightening to me. Like, I, what what does that mean? It, yeah. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just, <laughs> yeah. The Lord appeared to him and said some more stuff. Yeah. Okay. And then it goes on even further to say that Avram called upon the Lord by name. Yeah. What? (laughs) Like they really have, they have gone from not knowing each other to being pretty intimate partners quickly. Yeah. I really love that, Amy. I hadn't really put that together for myself, but. That's exactly right. God sort of gave a an invitation a few verses ago, and Abraham took up the invitation. And, you know, we talked about that as risk, and they, they continue to risk. God, I'm going to appear to you. So now you kind of, I mean, you've seen God, whatever that means. And then now Abram knows God's name, which, you know, we don't really get the revelation of the name mm-hmm. until Moses in Exodus mm-hmm. 3. And so... We, we've talked before on the podcast about the power of the name. And if you know someone's name, you have yeah. connection to them. You can invoke their name for all kinds yeah. of reasons. Yeah. And Avram does it. Avram doesn't yeah. just know the name. He invokes the Lord by yeah. name. It's That's cra- right. It's just like all this stuff that you're like, you can't do that. Well, yeah. Avram can do it because he was a, it was <laughs> only one of him. You know, yeah. like he was the first yeah. one. And so it was like all the rules that came into play later, not in play. There yeah. are no rules. I love that because it's a it, it's an image of a God who's not holding back. Like God says, I'm yeah. going to be in relationship. So it's just like, here I am. And Abraham, Abram seems to be able to sort of go with that and just say, okay, well, like, so I'll build you an altar and I'll, you know. Mm-hmm. So this, I love that. There's both sort of risking and accepting the risk mm-hmm. in the relationship. I love too that he builds an altar and then he leaves. And then he builds another altar. Oh, yeah. Like the, I always think of altars as this, like, you have an altar. I mean, this is a very, I guess, not. this is not how things worked at that time. But, like, you build an altar, and, like, that's your altar, and that's the altar that you always go to. But yeah. that's not what's happening here. It's like there's yeah. an experience of God, and so Avram builds an altar where there was that experience. It's like a marker of the place. Yeah. Um, but then Avram is not tied to that place, and yeah. the Lord is not tied to that place. Yeah. They can both move on to the next place. I really love that, Amy. And especially when when we frame it in terms of that little part of chapter 11 that we read, where they do seem to get stuck in a place. And so yeah. in some ways, this is a, con- a contrast to that. Like you can have significant places and significant moments where significant things happen. You can acknowledge them, mm. but you can also move on from them. I love that. And I think a lot about institutions and, you know, in my own case, thinking about churches and 
places, like even just like you were talking about last week, like projects that you start. And then I'm very good at starting things, but I'm, <laughs> I have a very bad time letting things go when their time is up. Cause it feels like yeah. failure to me somehow to say this thing that I started has now, it's not, it's not the place or the thing for me anymore. It's really hard. And I feel like this, what you're saying is like, no, you can have like very significant experiences that then you continue that on. That you then keep moving on from, right. Gosh, as you were saying that, it was reminding me of um, conversations we had had before, I think about about a passage from that gospel, but just this idea that like we want to, when we have these encounters with God or when biblical characters have encounters with God, Sometimes they, they want to hold on to it, like freeze that moment in time, like the, the disciples who wanted to stay up on the mountain. Oh, yeah, the mountain of transfiguration. Um, and Jesus is like, yeah. yeah, no, we can't do that. Don't, yep. don't build a yeah. sukkah here. We, you know, we can't do that. That, like this story is, is resonating on that chord to me that like you don't, yeah. just because you've had that significant experience, like you can't grasp it and hold on to it forever. You don't need to. It's alive. And like you keep moving and it keeps going with you and, you know, just build another altar. Yeah. We we haven't talked about Mercy Church in a long time on here mm. for reasons um, related to COVID. <laughs> but, you know, when we founded Mercy Church, one of the things we said was we're going to create a community that exists for as long as the community is needed. And when it is no longer needed, we're going to let it go and trust that something else will come in its place. And this is a very Christian thing to do, right? Death and resurrection, yeah. right? Things end and new things come into being. And this reminds me of that. In fact, Mercy Church closed in March of 2020 with the plan to reopen. And then it's just COVID is not conducive to our style right. and our community has moved on. And so we we let Mercy Church go and it was interesting how hard that was, even though we hadn't met for a while, just to be like, no, this is a thing that was important to me. And to let it go feels like a, I don't know, it's not exactly a failure, but a loss or a- It's a loss. Something. And this is helpful to say like, no, like what you did, that was important. You built something there. Yeah. God was present there. Like you had an experience there. And then in the way that you planned, when it was time to move on from that place, you move on from that place. Yeah. I think it's incredible that, I mean, maybe this is common in the church world, but that you had the foresight to articulate that beforehand because it is awfully hard to do. It's awfully hard to recognize in the moment that it's time. And yeah. At least to have the, that memory <laughs> that yeah. like we knew there would be a time. Yeah. We expected there would be a time. Yeah. And I think this is it. There's a book, it's a quirky little book written by a fellow named William Stringfellow who was writing in the Vietnam War era called An, uh, An Ethic for Christians and Other Aliens Living in a Strange Land. Mm. It's a really a, sort of a, a riff on the book of, of Revelation is what it is. But one of the he's where I got that idea from. And what he says is that movements settle into institutions Yes. And institutions, when they become interested in their own survival, they they get turned against themselves. They become yeah. so interested in their own survival that they do things that they never intended to do, and they can become agents of destruction. And I was that was so powerful to me and resonates with me. And so when we founded Mercy Church, mm -hmm. I was thinking about that. And I'll tell you that we're off on a thing here, but... Mm. 
we had thought for a little while that maybe it was time to let Mercy Church go and we couldn't do it. And so COVID came along and was like, okay, well, if you can't do this, then like, <laughs> let me help. Here it is done for you. So it was, it was interesting to me that as, as much as we had planned that, that we still found it really difficult. And even after we'd been closed for a year and a half or whatever, I still thought, oh, maybe we can bring it back. So it is hard to let go of things. And so, mm. so this idea of Avram doing that, leaving markers of the journey, but continuing on the journey, I, I really love that image. Mm. Oh, my gosh. I feel like that. I feel like that sort of opened us into what is usually our closing conversation, but I want to ask first if there are, we didn't spend a lot of time on this last section. So are there other thoughts or questions that you want to put on the table? The only other thing, it's been sort of implicit in this conversation, but in verse seven, we get, I give this land to your descendants. And here it becomes very clear what the promise is. It's about land and it's about descendants. This is for this couple who have no children and they're quite old and they're not able to have children. And the promise is sort of an impossible promise. Here is a here is going to be descendants for you and this is going to be a place that they can call home even though there are people who are there. We've talked about all the complications of that, yeah. but the beauty of that blessing, you know, you who thought your life was at an end, here's this new beginning of a new family and descendants and your name's going to be great and all of these things. And here's a home when you haven't been able to find a home. I don't know really what to say about that other than it's really rich and, and it becomes a repeated theme in the Genesis and really the whole Torah yes. land and, and progeny. Yep. No, that's beautiful. And you know, it's funny. I saw the land here, but because it didn't say anything about having lots of pro like lots of offspring it didn't yeah. really it, it did i didn't see it but you're yeah. right just the fact that there is a promise of any offspring yeah is certainly beyond what avram can see in any practical way happening in his life that's right man what a trippy trip avram has taken like yeah that's a lot i hope he was journaling i wish he had his <laughs> journals yeah wouldn't that be something I feel like you offered us already such a beautiful uh, teaching that could be lifted up from this week's text, but maybe there's something else that is that is gnawing at you. What would you What would you want to lift up for people just from these nine verses? I mean, I think that there's two things, both both of which I've already kind of talked about at, at some length. But one one of them is what I was just saying about leaving markers and moving on. The other one is a conversation that we were having earlier about this blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. To me, that verse is a pivotal verse, not only in this chapter, but in my mind, in the life of the, the faith, both Jewish and Christian. Like, what are the, what are the verses that orient what you think Williamson, it means to be a person of faith. And that's it. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And so I think that's an important touchstone for me and for, for all of us who claim to be followers of this God who is in this text is the blessing is so that we can be a blessing. And to do that kind of 
check of ourselves, wherever we are, whatever people we're with, whatever we're doing, is it that the, that the world is able to be blessed through us? Or is it that we are somehow harming the world or even setting ourselves apart from the world in ways that are, you know, withdrawing? We're, we're not trying to be a positive presence in the world, but instead segregating ourselves away and sort of leaving the, the others out there. That's not what God has in mind in this text. It is the end game is always so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Even from this very first moment, that's what God's got in mind. And to me, that that is crucial. And I mean, kind of an interesting, like just every once in a while, like at your annual meeting or whatever you do, yeah. like uh, your New yeah. Year's resolutions, like let's make a list of the ways in which I'm a blessing and yeah. and, and see if if that can be the the way that I live in the world. I love that. I love that. It is a good, it is a good and broad and rooted and true, like, uh, mission statement or litmus test or, yeah. you know, to say like, am, am I, am I being a blessing to the people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or am I not? Yeah. yeah. That's one of the things that you say, I hear you say, you've said it to me before, but I hear you say it to people every once in a while. You'll say, the world is a better place because you're in it. Mm. And of all the things people say, like, like I love that one, you know, like, and I try to say that to people from time to time, just to say, you're, you being in the world is a blessing to the world. Like, it I just, is, yeah. I, there's something yeah. so rich about that. Anyway, that's really neither here nor there, but it made me think of that. Yeah, Amy, when you no. read this text, what, um, where are you connecting? Gosh, I feel like there's so many, there's just, there's so much in this text. I will, I'll tell you what's, what's rising up for me now, and I'll sort of intentionally choose something that's a little different than, than some of what you have spoken about. So this text will, this, you know, this episode is coming out during this time period on the Jewish calendar that's leading up to Rosh Hashanah, when we are supposed to be doing all this, like, introspection and you know, checking ourselves and like, am I, am I a blessing and am I on the right path and what do I need to shift? Mm -hmm. And, and all of that is right and good. And I think part of, I'm thinking back to the, the Lech Lecha phrase and yeah. what if we think of it as go to yourself? Mm. Because one of the challenges with this process that Jews go through tshuva is like, you have to get, get yourself, get back to the right path. But like, what's the right path? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, like tradition can give you an approximate path, mm -hmm. but the actual process of figuring out what, what is authentically yours in the world is, as I'm realizing as an adult and as an adult raising teenagers now, that is surprisingly hard and scary to leave mm. what is your quote unquote father's house, to leave the sort of base of teachings that you have that may or may not totally work for you to go forward into a place where you don't know where you're going to. You don't know the person you're going to grow into. You don't know how to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's this enormous act of faith and it's for me so deeply tied into this idea that you can have some kind of connection to God because there's no other guide for it. There's no one yeah. else who can tell you you know, that you're on the right track. And so I, you know, 
again, like I'm sort of, I'm departing from the the literal story of the text, but at this time of year, it just feels really lovely to have, to have that phrase in the Torah to say like, no, you, you actually need to, it is a journey and maybe a literal journey through a desert, but it's also a, you know, journey deeper into your spiritual bowels to figure out what is authentic to you. And it's, it does not get easier as I get older. Yeah, I, I resonate with that and I appreciate that so much. And, you know, the other thing that you're making me think about is in this text, as we I think we talked about, Abram and his family, Tara, actually set out to Canaan and then they just mm-hmm. didn't make it. And where God ends up taking them is to the place where they had sort of, where they had started out to go anyway. Yeah. And so what you're saying about your own intuitions, like, there is something in you that kind of knows, yeah. but maybe you're not able to get there on your own or you're not sure the path to get there. So there's something there about trusting the process, but there's also something there about trusting yourself. Yeah. It's a beautiful nine verses. Those are really beautiful nine verses. Next week, we do not have such a short text. We are skipping. Oh, my goodness. Next week is our last week in the book of Genesis. <laughs> I know, Amy. <laughs> ah! Okay. Yeah. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 39, um, verses 1 to 23, a, a story of Joseph in prison. Such a good text. Such a good text. But we do move at a, at a pace through these we Hebrew scriptures. We move at scriptures. a pace. We got places to go. We do. <laughs> All right, friend. It's always a pleasure. I'll see you next time. Okay, Amy. See you then. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Genesis 39, 1-23, the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Until then, keep on digging.